This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Everybody, you're listening to Using the Whole Whale. I'm Krisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers at Whole Whale, filling in for George in the meantime. Uh, today we have Samer Brook, who is running for Democratic candidate for New York, um, for New York Senate for District 55. Samer, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode. <laughs> you. So yeah, let's dive right in. Uh, you've worked with a number of nonprofits. Can you talk about some of the work that you've done? Sure. I, I can talk about two that I spent kind of the most time with. The first was DoSomething.org, which is really a digital platform that educates and mobilizes young people ages 13 to 25 to take part in volunteer and civic actions. So for example, in 2018, they reached out to their over 6 million members all over the country to give them tools they needed to register to vote and host voter registration drives ahead of the midterm elections and ended up registering over 100,000 new young voters. And um, when I was with DoSomething.org, I really focused on business development and helping them raise money either through corporations or foundations or individuals to make sure that the nonprofit had the resources they needed to create all of that impact with young people. And then after that, I also did a similar role at an organization called Chalkbeat. And what Chalkbeat does is they go on a grassroots level to really lift up the inequities in uh, K through 12 education systems. And so um, at the time that I was working with them, they had bureaus in seven different cities around the country. And again, what I helped them with was really looking at when you think about similar to Whole Whale, when you think about the organization as a whole, the work you do, the data you're able to mine through your investigative reporting, I look at that with the lens of how do we use this to create sustainable sources of funding? Because at the end of the day, the nonprofit can only do the work if they have the funding that they need and continuous funding. And so I worked with them on finding sponsorship opportunities where we could um, sell to companies interested in our audience and also working with foundations who are interested in helping to eliminate inequities in education and uh, finding ways to work together with those foundations and individuals to fund and support our work. Wow, that's amazing work Um, and very important. Has there been any uh, standout projects that you worked on that you think is particularly your favorite or that you think made the most impact? Yes be at dosomething.org several years ago. I did a project around, a campaign really, around filling the bone marrow registry. And so what we found is that a lot of folks don't have information around what it means to be a bone marrow donor. And uh, it's usually considered a very intrusive surgery and and a lot of folks don't even really know what it takes to be on the registry, which is really just a swab of your cheek painless. I tried it. Um, and, and it's pretty easy to go through and then you can actually help save someone's life. And so I think everyone knew that that was something important that just like when you donate blood, these are things that can save people's lives. And if given the chance, most people would 
at least think about wanting to participate. And so we wanted to run this campaign to really educate people around the need for this and the need to have more donors in the registry and the need to educate people around exactly what it entailed, that it wasn't quite as scary as, you know, maybe even it was 10, 15 years ago before advancements in science and medicine. And we were going to companies seeing who would help us put this campaign on, right? In other words, who would help us fund it? And one of the proudest moments I had was being able to tell a story of intersectionality through the lens of this bone marrow registry campaign. And so what we were able to identify is that there were certain groups um, based on race and ethnicity that had even a greater need uh, for bone marrow donors. And so we found that it was a lot of black and brown communities that needed these donors more so than other communities. And just by being able to highlight that piece of the piece of the puzzle, we were able to get incredible support for a company to come in who was looking to figure out how to bring a racial lens and, you know, this lens of intersectionality into their, um, into their campaign for, for health. And so it was this amazing moment where we were now educating a group of people around the power that they specifically had to make this change. And you got to think about it from a health perspective, you got to think about it from racial inequity perspective. And we ended up far and beyond going beyond our goal, our wildest dreams <laughs> of, of what we thought we could accomplish. And it was really around telling that story because we're in a time now where people are interested in that kind of story. And if they're able to make a dual benefit, not just medically, but also writing an inequity, you see that people really are interested. And so that was just a journey that, you know, you really only got through by investigating and researching and peeling back the layers of these seemingly straightforward problems and social causes we have and really figuring out, you know, what's beneath these problems. And then, of course, it's so rewarding that people were actually interested in those layers that you had peeled off and willing to participate. So that was one that I always hold up as kind of that perfect moment where everything came together and the time was right in society and companies were willing to have these conversations and people, young people, were willing to jump in and, um, and participate. Yeah, I love that, especially the aspect of like community, like you said, especially intersectionally. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really, really wonderful. So with all of that in mind, all of your nonprofit work, your proud moments, um, has any of that ever inspired you into starting a campaign and running for political office? All of it has. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when you work in social impact work, and I talked about some of the nonprofit work I've done. The other side of that is I've also spent about six years working in mission-driven for-profit companies. So I've seen it from both sides. And the beauty and the curse of working in social impact work is that you're very aware of the problems. Mm. You're very aware of kind of the ills in our society that these nonprofits and these for-profit um, mission-driven companies are set up to solve. And so you spend every day, you know, especially when I think about working at Chalkbeat, every day I'm reading about young kids not getting the services they need 
or young kids having problems in schools because the paint in their homes had lead and no one uh, did anything about it because they were living in public housing. So it can be very, I'll just say it, it can be depressing. It can be frustrating to be so close to these problems. And on the other hand, it's really, really hopeful because you are part of those solutions uh, of, of people who are willing to, you know, take the pay cut, do the hard work of working for nonprofits that actually want to address them. So I'd say I spent the past decade or so really close to all of these challenges, whether it was environmental, social, through education. And I was also able to see what a lot of the solutions could look like. And I think as I went through my career, I've always wanted to get closer and closer to the problem because I believe those closest to the problem should be closest to the solution and likely have the best solutions. Mm -hmm. So as I went through my career, whether it was helping to start a company or working with nonprofits, I was always seeking to get closer and closer. And I finally came to a moment a couple years ago when I realized that the closest I could get to really creating the solutions that would be structural and systemic to really deal with some of these major uh, challenges that we've had in society is through being at that table where those structures are made. And of course, when I say structures, I mean the legislation and the policies. And once you have the ability to change those structures, that is what's going to change the course of our trajectory for the future. Right. So it really sounds like a blessing and a curse. You got it. Right. (laughs) Uh, So it sounds like in some ways it's made it easier for you to take on more of a political role and really be a voice at the table. Uh, And not only at the table, but also in these discussions, which is the most important part. Uh, Are there any other similarities or differences that you've found um, that haven't made it either easier or even more of a challenge when running your campaign? I would say... Working in nonprofits in the role that I worked in specifically has really benefited my campaign so far twofold. One is uh, expected and the other less expected, but important to point out, especially for anyone who wants to enter politics, especially for women, especially for people of color entering this space. Right. So the first expected way is kind of what I said, which is having been exposed to so many of our systemic challenges through nonprofit work, I come already into this campaign with a pretty decent knowledge of a breadth of issues. And so that's one of the things, the beauty of, especially working at a place like dosomething.org where you heard me mention that they've done voter registration and then my proudest moment was working on bone marrow uh, registration. And so you can see, you know, we covered every single cause you could imagine. I think it was over 300 different campaigns while I was there. And so because I've been able to tap into all of these different topics and causes and spoken with people affected by them, I get to come now with this vast knowledge that most people don't have, which is an amazing asset. I can sit and talk to someone about recycling education, which I did for four years, and then I can sit and talk to them about inequities in education. Um, And so having that breadth of knowledge and skill set has been really already helpful even before I hopefully win my seat in November. 
And the second one that I think fewer people will talk about, but I'm going to hit it home because it is so important and it is the lifeblood of political campaigns is money. Right. <laughs> Nobody ever wants to talk about money. Very but, taboo. <laughs> very taboo. But unfortunately, in our current campaign finance landscape, you need money to run a campaign. Right. And uh, you are largely dependent on volunteers, but at the end of the day, you have to pay for mailers. It's just like marketing campaigns, right? You have to pay for mailers to go to someone's house. You're buying, just like you do with the digital ads, you have to buy Facebook ads, yep. for better or for worse. You have to buy all of these different things to get the word out. So I will say that the second part is that I've worked in business development, I've worked in marketing, and I've worked in raising money uh, through foundations and individuals. And so that skill in and of itself and being able to bring that as a candidate has been remarkable uh, to the tune that we have raised more money in our first filing than any other candidate in our entire region, which is unheard of for a first-time candidate, but it's really having the grounding of working at all these organizations that helped me learn those skills so that I could, you know, finally tune them before deciding to jump into the political arena. Right. Thank you for being so honest about that, because I feel like there's a lot of smoke and mirrors when it comes to running for office, uh, especially on the people who are actually running. Um, so being so honest about the fact that money is a necessity, honestly, is very refreshing. Um, Great. I hope, I hope people listen because it's <laughs> true. Um, yeah, on the topic of numbers and money and things of that nature, um, how much of a role do you think data plays in your campaign? Do you use it? Do you not? Data is everything. Mm. That's it. <laughs> that is everything in every role I've ever had, especially in uh, political campaigning. The, the thing that's different is the type of data. So here, our data is really people. Those are our data points. Our data is looking at registration of voters. It's looking at uh, enrollment in which party people are enrolled. Uh, so, so one little fun piece of data for, for folks is in our district in Western New York, we have a sizable, almost a third of people who are unaffiliated or not registered with one of the two major parties, which is really interesting. So when you think about, again, as a marketing plan or political campaign, when you look at your data and you see that you know, for a third of those people saying Democrat or Republican means nothing to them because they've chosen not to affiliate, that changes how you approach them. And so these are the kinds of data points that are so, so crucial for us to understand. And then the, the last piece that's really, really helpful is there's data that can actually tell you whether or not folks are voting. Of course, it will not tell you who they vote for because that we don't do that in this country. What they will do is tell you whether or not a registered voter participated at all in an election. And now that's another layer of data that you can say, this person has a propensity to vote or this person doesn't. Or maybe this registered voter only votes in a presidential year. And then you can decide how do you wanna treat that voter? Do you wanna do extra work to encourage them to vote in a non-presidential year? 
or do you assume they're not going to come out unless it's a presidential? So you get to have all of these decisions you make just at it and in any company, um, but our data set are voters. So it's, it's really fascinating to see how you slice and dice that, how it affects both, I'll go back to money, it affects how much money you put where, and it affects where you spend your time door knocking and making calls. And being able to work with that data, I'd say is hugely important. And I think that's another huge opportunity for folks who are interested in working with that kind of data. Come work in politics because we need you. We really need more people. I mean, we, there are some brilliant people in the field, but we need more people, we need more diverse people. Um, coming into that space and using all the skills you have for this. Yeah, and I love that you point out that your data points are people because I think it affects nonprofits specifically when it comes to fundraising. Um, you see these numbers and you're trying to get them as big as possible, but at the end of the day, these are still people. So how do you, I guess, look at these data points, but also remember the humanity behind it. Well, I think that, I think that's probably, like you said, a struggle anytime your data are people. Uh, I think in my experience, and this is both from the nonprofit sector and also politically, is realizing the importance of face-to-face and realizing the importance of seeing and interacting and listening to these people who, as soon as you go behind a computer screen are just dots or points in a spreadsheet, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I've been really excited to do and have, we've really, it's really kind of exciting. We've kind of set this trend in the area of this really simple thing, they're just coffee meetups. And so once or twice a week, we go to a common coffee shop because the district is huge that we're running in. And so we'll choose a different one every week and we go and invite anyone who wants to come and we just sit and we talk and we allow people to bring in their problems, but also the things that are working for them. They can ask questions, they can offer suggestions, insight, whatever it is. But I find that even if it's anecdotal in that way, and it's just five to you know, 20 people at a time, it is continuously putting a face and really what you're saying, a humanity to what we then will go back and, you know, extrapolate into thousands of points of data, which again are people. And I think that that's really key. And so I think that's the same as in nonprofits, uh, whether it was at do something and going out and talking to the young people doing the work uh, and not just, you know, looking at their actions on the computer. Right. I think that that's always important because you will always pull something out that a number can't tell you, right. right? So when I think about the data that I talked about in terms of people who vote and people who don't, going and sitting with people, that's where you can find out, well, is there a barrier to them voting? You know, we, we have these uh, towers, these apartment buildings, low-income housing, and it can be a barrier for some folks in those towers to get over to vote. So here in Rochester, we have polling places in a lot of those towers, and it makes sense. So right. you've got a tower of 500 people, it absolutely makes sense to have a polling place in that, in that community room. And so those are the kinds of things that you can really parse out when you're talking to people versus when you're looking at their data points. Yeah, that's amazing. And I also want to go back to thinking about adding this humanity, right? Do you find that adding 
people and their emotions and their being into the equation helps also with fundraising? And what kind of results and data have you seen with that? The short answer is yes, perhaps in a different way, at least as I have seen it. Mm -hmm. I think most people who do fundraising or really it's any ask you have of someone, you're always going to do better to tap into an emotional connection. Right. So when we think about fundraising like this, it's really someone making an investment Mm -hmm. in your cause, you as a person, your campaign, whatever it is. And the less transactional you can make that, the better off you are. And I say that because transactional can work once, maybe twice. But if you're looking to actually engage these people, donors, uh, individuals, investors, whatever it is, over a long period of time and repeatedly, you're going to need to create some kind of relationship. And very few relationships are all that successful without some amount of emotion or connection. And so what we've been successful in doing, I think, is tapping into a big need, a major need that folks are feeling right now, which is a need for change. I think a lot of people feel frustrated. A lot of people feel hopeless. And they're looking for something tangible that they can do to make it go away or make it better. And so I want to share a quick story that I think encapsulates all of this, which I promise I didn't make up. I just couldn't believe that it happened like this. So a few months ago, I got a voicemail from someone. I didn't recognize the number, but I'm getting a lot of calls these days. So (laughs) that's not that weird. And someone called me and said, Samra, I was just watching the news. I am, I think it was a little bit before impeachment or something. I was just watching the news and I am so frustrated and discouraged and I can't even watch anymore. And then I went to my computer and I saw your Facebook page and I watched your video and you give me so much hope. And I know that we can do something here in Rochester and I want to help. Please put me to work. Tell me what you need. I want to be a part of this because I'm so hopeless right now. And you're the only thing giving me hope. And I listened to that message and I almost teared up a little bit. I thought, wow, you never realize the effect that you have on people just by staying positive and putting work in to make this positive change. And The best part of that story is she was actually a former teacher of mine um, from middle school, which was amazing, but now she's a volunteer on the campaign. And, and so I share that to say, you know, even when you're not directly making that connection, your actions and what you put out there can make that connection and people will pick up on it. And I think people are looking for ways to get involved. And now it's just incumbent on those folks in positions like mine to make sure that there's a place for everyone who wants to get involved. Wow, that's an amazing story. <laughs> I know, I, I keep the voicemail when I'm, anytime there's a rough day, just listen to that. Just have hope. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> so kind of going off of that inspiring story, did you ever have like an aha moment when you kind of knew that you wanted to run? Everybody asks me that. Mm-hmm. And I have two answers. One is there was an aha moment, one of those moments where everything came together when I knew exactly the race that I wanted to run in and when I wanted to run. But before that, 
it wasn't as if I woke up one day and said, this has to be it. It was really that I kept waking up every day knowing that there was more I should be doing Mm -hmm. and that I knew that there was more I could do with the skills and, and the experience I had. And that eventually led me to, you know, taking trainings to run for office, volunteering on other campaigns. The biggest, which was uh, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, that really changed my perspective on what's possible. And so that happened repeatedly, I'd say, over the past two and a half years. But the real aha moment came for this specific district when, and I'll try to tell this story quickly, (laughs) but essentially... I was speaking on a panel with my fellow graduates at my high school um, one night, and it was for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, there were six of us graduates of color speaking about our experiences in this school. And it was a wonderful panel and hearing everyone's stories. And afterwards, a lot of people came up to me, elected officials, parents, teachers, students, uh, former teachers, and we had this conversation and people were sharing with me their frustrations about a lot of things that they were trying to get done locally and at a state level. And when we looked around, we saw that there were these incredible local leaders and town leaders and very committed to, to positive social change in the community, but they weren't getting the answers they needed from their state representatives. And they said that to me and it was kind of like, okay, let me think through this. You know, how can I help just as a resident and community member and former, you know, alumni of the school? And I went home that night and it was just, it was this seed in my head. I had already been thinking about political office and all these things, but I wasn't quite sure where I could have the biggest impact. And so I went home and I just started researching. I looked at every office. I looked at, you know, where the policies were coming from, who controlled the budget. And I went over and over and over again. And then around 4 a.m., we talk about aha moments. They only happen between like 4 a.m. <laughs> and I found, I realized that the state Senate district that we were in was incredibly gerrymandered. Mm. And gerrymandering, as a quick note, if folks don't know what that means, it, it basically means that whichever party it is will carve out a district that is beneficial to that party to ensure that they continue to hold control. In this case, um, that's what happened in our district. And so I looked at this District 55, and if you can believe it, it literally created a roadmap to my life. And it had just that one part of the city of Rochester that I grew up in. It had just those few suburbs where I ended up going to school and where that panel was and where my parents live now. And it even went so far to cover a second county and just the part where my family has been for the past 100 years, and my grandparents live now at 80 and 84. Wow. And that was one of those aha moments where I thought, well, I know I'm trained to run for office. I believe I have the skills and the knowledge and the values that reflect my community. And if there were ever a place to do it, it would likely be a district where I know it better than the back of my hand. I've known it my entire life, and everyone I love <laughs> is encapsulated in this one random district. And that was that moment where at that moment I decided, I think it must've been maybe at 4.01 AM that I was going to be running and it would be in this district and it would be in 2020. Mm. I love that. Do you have any like top three tips for just a regular, regular citizen who's looking to run into local government? 
first of all, I'd like to say regular degular. Is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, regular degular citizens should be the people running for office. So mm -hmm. consider that the prerequisite to run for office. And I think everyone should try it and do it. Other than that, if it's something you're interested in, volunteer on a campaign right now. Anyone can do that. It doesn't matter what skills you have, whatever it is you do from nine to five. And even if you don't have a nine to five, I promise you that you have a skill for a campaign. And so I would recommend that you, you know, go online, check out which races are running in your, in your hometown, go on Facebook. Most campaigns have a Facebook page and really do a little bit of research to find out who you might be able to volunteer. And then just most people, most campaigns are desperate for volunteers. They run on volunteers. So it's pretty easy usually to find where you can sign up as a volunteer. And that first step can be huge because that will put yourself out there and it might be scary, but here's the thing, you can sign up to volunteer and if it's too scary, you can always wait. <laughs> but I just think that's such an important step um, to put yourself out there and just get your feet wet with, with what campaigning is like. Um, I got incredible experience volunteering on campaigns and the first time I volunteered, all I did was stamp envelopes and, and then I got to address them. And then I moved up to actually writing these thank you letters. And then I got to actually attend the events and meet everyone you know, at these campaign events. And so I would say that's the number one thing. And then the other thing is I would like more people to consider running for office the way you consider any other career. And so when you think about going into a career, a lot of times people will want to go to school for that career. They'll want to go get a training. You know, there's all these different online courses people take now. It's the same for running for office. So I took five or six different trainings lasting from just online modules and webinars to a five-day in-person training. Um, and I think that there is so much opportunity right now to do that. And there are so many organizations that are meant for all different groups of people. They've got one for people under 40. They've got one for just state and local races. They've got one for women. So they have so many organizations that I would encourage folks to sign up for one of those as well. A lot of them are free and it just allows you on your own timetable to learn about what it's like to run for office. Those are amazing tips. Um, and very important ones. I especially like the one about running for office is just a normal job, <laughs> an important one, but shouldn't be faced with so much anxiety in a way. Um, yeah, Absolutely. so we are going to move on to our rapid fire round. I'll just ask you a couple questions, take about 30 seconds to answer them. Are you ready? I'm ready. 30 seconds. Let's try. <laughs> awesome. What is one tech tool or website that you or your campaign has started using this in the last year? Slack. I love Slack. <laughs> Me too. And I've had to force everyone to use it who aren't used to working at tech companies, but it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. Um, are there any tech issues you're battling with right now? The only one that comes to mind is uh, I've learned that when you use, we use MailChimp and I've learned that when you have like at somraforsenate.com, a lot of times they go to spam. And so I'm trying to figure out how to stop that from happening. Mm, yeah. 
That's a good one. <laughs> Feel free to call in and tell us because we need help with that. <laughs> uh, what is coming in the next year that has you most excited? Easy. November 3rd, 2020 is the election that I am most excited to win. Yeah, and it'll be here before we know it. Truly. Uh, can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Yes, this is a weird one. But early in my career, I was presenting a presentation deck a PowerPoint slide to a really big donor. And on the very first page, my CEO found a typo, which I could not believe because I had proofread it so many times, but yeah. my brain just washed over it. So for the rest of my career, what I will always do now is I will read everything that I send out, especially something important like that from backwards. I read it backwards so that my brain can't fill in the correct spellings and I check I can notice if there's any misspelled words. Huh, that's a good one. <laughs> Ever, but it's very effective. Yeah, that's a really good one. I'm using that now. Yeah, please. If you had a hot tub time machine to go back to the beginning of your work, what advice would you give yourself? I would probably tell myself to stay in touch with people. I think at least I'll speak for my own generation, we're movers and shakers and we have all these big dreams and we continue to chase them and do amazing things. And when I think about the very, very beginning of my career, I wish I had done more to stay in touch and build relationships with folks from those first couple of years, because I think there's so much I'd probably learn about myself and, um, and my own growth over the past decade. So that's one thing I'd probably do. Yeah. That's a good one. Definitely something I need to work on. What is something you or your campaign should stop doing? I don't think I have an answer for that. We're such a small, scrappy team right now. That <laughs> there's only more that we should be doing. So I, in case my team hears this, there's nothing we should stop doing. Because <laughs> whatever we're doing is working. So we're going to keep going. Awesome. If you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry, what would it do? For the political campaign industry, if I had a wand, I would take big money and corporate special interests out of it. Mm. How did you get started in the social impact space? I got started uh, because I, I, I did the Peace Corps in Guatemala. And when I came back, a friend of mine had a job at what was first started as a B corporation back in the day when no one knew what that was. And he described to me his work of working on recycling education with mayors. And it sounded so amazing. I didn't understand that companies like that could exist. And uh, when an opening came up, he knew that I really enjoyed that work. So he put me up for the job and, and the rest was history. I was hooked on having work that actually creates impact. And I don't think I can go back. And lastly, what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? So much advice. I have so much advice. Uh, let me think of just one. Okay, I think I've got it. Find out what motivates you. Because in social impact work, you have to believe that you can actually create change in the causes that you're passionate about. And so one thing that I did early on was go online and I just Googled any sort of social impact job, any sort of buzzwords. And I looked at these descriptions of 
organizations and descriptions of roles to see what stood out to me. And it's a visceral response you will often have to even words that are attracted to you, things that you want to do. And write those down and hold on to them and let that guide you through your work. Because I will say, oftentimes, the pay isn't as lucrative as other corporate jobs. Sometimes it is, which is great, but you have to really believe that there's something bigger that you're doing. And I find that if you're early on as a college grad or in college, if you can identify, and it could change over the years, but if you can identify the things that are really motivating to you and seek those out, you'll at least always feel like you're doing what brings you purpose. And, and I think that's huge in your career. Yeah, I love that. And I think that hits it right on the head, the quarter life crisis that all recent grads are going through. <laughs> Absolutely, I get it. Um, well, that concludes our rapid fire round. Thank you so good. much for the rapid fire round and for answering all those questions before. Um, so where can people find you? You can find me at samraforsenate.com. You can drop us a message, fill in your contact, join our mailing list, uh, or feel free to email me there with any questions. Do you have any socials? Yes, Samra for Senate on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much, Samra. You got it. Thank you. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.